Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. First, I want to say you did a great job last week. Oh, thanks. You guys hear him speak? Thanks. Yeah. And uh, I both listened to it and I watched it. I dreamt about it. Wow. No, I didn't dream about it. But That's anyway, you, you really did a great job. And um, it's good to know that we've got a good teacher amongst us. It's a pleasure to be used in that way. Yeah, that's good. All right, I do have a quiz because I understand outside of being an incredible teacher, mm. you are also an ex-baseball player. Yes, so I, I am. Have a, yes, that's X with the emphasis on X, you don't need I to guess. No, not, that. okay. So anyway, I'm going to put a picture of a baseball player up on the screen, and you're going to have a huge tip here, like what his name is. His name's Texas? No. Oh, it's C.J. Wilson. <laughs> yeah, okay. Now, That's all right, quiz. so you guys know who C.J. Wilson is. I mean, you know a little bit. And what is his claim to fame? There you Whoa. go. See, that was going to be a quiz for him. That's right. Wow, go Barons. And he started the second game of the World Series for the Texas Rangers. And even though their team got shelled, he pitched great. <laughs> they got shelled after he went out. Uh. All right. So a little more of a quiz. Where was he born? Um, I'm going to go with uh, Hogue Hospital. That is true. That is amazing. Whoa. What do Raised I win? in Newport. Went to Fountain Valley. Okay. Did any of you here go to Fountain Valley High School? All right. And so here. you knew him, obviously. Whoa. You guys were buds. It's a safe place. And guess where he lives now? I'm going to go with... Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach. Wow. That's true. He lives One in of our very Beach. own. All right. And just a little more information, which I uh, left got off of. He is left <laughs> That's true. And yeah. he's the only player in the majors that wears a blue glove. I don't know if that's something. Yeah, that's not well known, but there you go. And, and he is a Taoist, which I don't know that much about. Taoism. I don't really think it's so much religion as it is sort of a discipline of life. But he doesn't drink, doesn't take drugs, doesn't do promiscuous sex. Very cool. But I also don't think that he's close to Jesus. Hmm. And he's in our community. And he's the kind of guy we're going after. And I think we should meet him when he comes home. We should give him a great attaboy I think that's right. All right. So there you know. That's one of our neighbors, you guys. Right there is one of our neighbors. And, you know, I was thinking a little bit more about this is, you know, there's about 100 or so of us that are sort of getting ready to go back into Huntington Beach and to do something we hope is powerful. And uh, this Saturday, yesterday, when I was running, I was thinking, when Jesus, before the church was born, uh, there was a group of people. We know there was the 12 disciples, and there was a bunch of other people, it says. And because of the size of the room they were meeting in, the upper room, the maximum they had was about 100 people. It might have been a little bit less, but they had about 100 people. And Jesus said... You guys are going to change the world through my power. And they did. And so that was just hugely encouraging as I was thinking about well, our Well, there's group. about 100 here. There's about 100 here. And we aren't really charged necessarily with the whole world. I mean, our part of the world is Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, that area. So this is going to be good. Let's do it. This is good. Okay, now I need you All to right. get down. I'm out. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Well... Listen, um, what Lowe started last week is really we're kind of doing part two of what he talked about. So the theme is going to be very similar. You know that we're in this series called Why Jesus Hates Religion. And one of the reasons that he hates religion 
is because it keeps certain people out. It really was a structure in that day that kept the insiders in and the outsiders out. And Jesus just railed against that. He hated it. It was so much against his nature and his purpose. Uh, Jesus very well could have been the most inclusive person that ever lived. I mean, he, he broke through boundaries and in much of the persecution and the, the, the junk that he faced was because he pushed so hard against anyone that was trying to keep people out. His attitude is, I want everyone to come in. I want to open it up for everyone. And so I want to talk a little bit more. Last week was sort of theory, a little more or less. I mean, we talked about the, having the right attitude. But Jesus gives this incredible story that really takes it from attitude to action. And it's a story that's familiar to probably many of you because it's one of the most famous stories of the New Testament, the story of the Good Samaritan. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10, because we're going to be planted in there. You're not even going to have to turn to any other spot. We're just going to stay in Luke chapter 10. And um, two of the things that religion does is it tends to make us think that if we're good enough, if we follow the rules well enough, we can actually earn our way to God. And the second thing that we see happening a lot in Jesus' day is that people who were sort of experts in the rules or the laws would reinterpret them or manipulate them to try and get them to say what they wanted them to say. And that was a huge problem. It's one of the reasons Jesus pushes so hard against them. One is you need to know you can't earn your way to God by keeping them. But secondly, those rules and laws that were implemented by God were really meant to help us Love God and love other people. And when you turn them around or you manipulate them or you change them around to try and fit into what you feel comfortable with, you take away the purpose of the rules. And the guy that we're going to look at today was doing both of these things. So we're going to look at somebody that was sort of highly religious and was playing both of these games. And Jesus, in a very ingenious way, uh, pushes against him. And he does it in such a way that we can learn from what he does with this guy. So uh, in Luke chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 25, we have sort of the introduction to this parable, the story of the Good Samaritan. And it says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. All right, let's just look at what we read. Uh, This is a lawyer who comes to Jesus, an expert in the law. And uh, this position in sort of the Jewish establishment and the religious establishment was a very vaulted position. This guy was very smart. He would have been acclaimed for his knowledge of uh, the law, and he would have been highly respected, probably wealthy. And so he comes in, and we know that he has an agenda simply because it says he was, he was testing Jesus. We don't know exactly what his agenda is yet, But we know that he's got an agenda. He's not just asking an innocent question. He actually is trying to push Jesus in some kind of way, getting the answer in a certain way. He asks this question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, That phrase is actually used again in Luke. Another guy comes to Jesus, uses the exact same phrase. Uh, Anybody want to take a guess on who that was? Nobody's going to risk it, huh? 
It was the rich young ruler. If you've ever seen that story, he asked Jesus the exact same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, there was an idea of what these guys meant. But if you just take the phrase itself, the phrase is kind of an interesting phrase. What must I do to inherit? And we know that if you inherit something, it doesn't have any, anything to do with what you do. You inherit because you're part of the family. You inherit because you know, you've either been born into the family or you've been adopted into the family. Inheritance is a gift that you're given. It doesn't, it's not based on anything that you do. You just, you just are. And because you're in the family, you inherit. So it's kind of an interesting thing. But anyway, here's what these guys are thinking. These guys really, it's sort of a code question. The code question is this. Of all the laws, because there's like 600 laws in the Old Testament, and then there's all kinds of laws that have been thrown on top of it. Of all the laws, which laws are the very most important? In other words, which ones do I need to pay a special attention to if I want to get eternal life? That's really what this question is. So it's a statement, and this is probably where the test is, because in that day and age, there was a lot of different thinking about which laws were the most important. Now, everyone agreed that the most important law was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so uh, anyone would have said that. They would have said it's the first one in the Ten Commandments, basically that idea. And uh, it's clearly the most important thing. But the second law was a huge debate at the time. And there were actually two rabbinical schools at the time, uh, Shammai and Hillel, And they each had different answers to that. Shammai said that the second most important law was to be holy as God is holy. Okay, good law, good thing to think about. Be holy as God is holy. So the first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second one is to be holy. The school of Hillel said instead, no, the first one is to love God, but the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And it really had implications as to how people interpreted the rest of the law. Which one of these was the second most important one to do? Well, with that information... Which guy, this lawyer, which rabbinical school does he go with? He goes with Hillel, right? He goes with love your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus say? All right, you guys going to play with me? You don't like playing, huh? He says, good. Yes, you got it. In fact, have you ever heard Jesus say those things? When he was asked the two most important rules, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus aligned with the school of Hillel on this as well because it was right, because it was the right thing. It was the right interpretation of the Old Testament. So anyway, uh, he does this, and Jesus says, do this and you will live, which is really an interesting thing because we know that there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. And yet he tells the guy, yes, if you'll love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, you will, if you do that, you will inherit life. But Jesus is just being very clever here, kind of subtle, kind of tricky. He's saying, all right, well, let's play this through and see what really happens, okay? Let's play this all the way through and we'll see what happens because here's what Jesus knows. There's no way this guy can do it. He can't perfectly love the Lord his God, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He can't love others as himself. If he could do it, if he could do it without blemish, if he could do it perfectly, yes, he would actually earn salvation if he could do it perfectly. But what Jesus knows is he can't. And see, this other guy's got this religious mindset really believing he can. 
And so Jesus will press him. We'll see as the story goes on how Jesus is going to press him over this issue. It says, it goes on to say in verse 29, uh, but he, being the lawyer, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now this is really interesting. All right. Let me see if I can sort of pull out the, uh, the irony here, or really sort of the arrogance of this guy. There's two laws, right? What's the first law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one is, what does he ask about? The second law, what does it imply about the first law? I've nailed that. No problem there. I've got down the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what he's done is he's probably a very good, you know, law-abiding Jewish person. I've nailed the first one. The, the interesting thing about nailing the first one is it's a little hard to be held accountable on that one usually, right? I mean, because that's between you and God, and so you don't really know what's going on inside and all those kinds of things. He says, I've nailed that. But help me with this neighbor thing, because he's trying to justify himself. Justify is just another way of earning his salvation. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to justify himself. And he's basically hoping that Jesus is going to kind of narrow what neighbor is, because if that can get narrow enough, if that becomes a small enough group of people that are easy enough to love, he's going to feel very confident in that. And at this day and age, there was a huge debate over who your neighbor was. Really, I mean, people would argue about this all the time. And uh, here were the answers that were generally given. Uh, the people that were the strictest or had the smallest group of neighbors were the Jewish people that would say, it's other Jews that abide by the law. Other Jews that interpret the law the way that I do, and they do a good job of keeping it and following it. So you're pretty much talking about the really religious people, the religious Jews. And so some people would say, well, those are your neighbors. Other people would say, that's too narrow. It's not just the Jews that do a great job of keeping the law. It's also the Jews that don't do such a great job of keeping the law. Okay, we've got to broaden it out. You know, not everyone's perfect. You're going to have to broaden it out a little bit. Then there were some people that had sort of the gall to come and say, well, I don't even think that that's broad enough. I think it may include Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. Okay, now that's, that is, you know, super controversial. I don't know. I don't know if we should include the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who have become Jewish or have, or have converted. But, okay, so those are the groups that we have. And so this guy is basically asking Jesus, which of these groups do I need to include? Because if you do this narrowly enough, I'm going to be in great shape because I've nailed the thing with God. I just have to kind of nail the thing with other people. All right, so that, that's kind of what's going on. And here's what I want to kind of point out. Um, it's easier for us to look at this guy and say, wow, you know, he's just totally got it wrong. Um, but this idea of narrowing who it is that we're supposed to love and also keeping it sort of as a theoretical debate, which they were experts on. So they would argue the theory of who they're to love, and then they'd forget to love anyone. They really didn't love anybody, but they, they talked a lot. They talked the good game. They talked the good game. They didn't actually practice it as well as they talked it. And so the idea here is that they would narrow down and make it narrow enough, and then they would also keep it sort of in theory. So in my heart, I love you. It just never comes out in any action or anything that I say, but just know that in my heart, I love you. 
And this is a very interesting thing that Jesus is going to push hard on, and it's a good thing for us to sort of get pushed against, is love is never a theory. It isn't love if it's a theory. Love is practical. And Jesus will push against this all the way through. And in fact, the story of the Good Samaritan is a great example of this. Um, Some of you by now know this, even though we've only known each other for a short time. You know that I'm a Beatles fan, right? Do you know that? Or is this new information? Oh my gosh, you guys, you need to know this about me. I'm a Beatles fan, okay? And I don't know what that means. I don't know if you can't listen to me anymore. But anyway, raised on the Beatles, big Beatles guy. Okay, so there was a song that they sang in 1967 called All You Need Is Love. How many of you have ever, when I say that, okay, very good. All right, All You Need Is Love. In fact, do you guys want to sing it with me? I know you do. All right, is Tim in here still? Uh, no. <laughs> Tim, Tim, we're, we're to get, just help me with this. Okay, we'll just do the chorus. All you need is love. Dun, 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 dun. All you need is love. Dun, 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 dun. All you need is love. Love, love is all you need. Okay, now, when they recorded that, that was beautiful. We'll have to take that off the tape if we could, please. Because all you're going to hear is my voice. It's going to be really scary. All right, so... Um, When the Beatles recorded that, they invited a whole bunch of people into a studio, so like Mick Jagger and all these celebrities and so forth. They they handed out flowers to everyone, and it was just like this sort of loving kind of a thing. And then they sang this song, and everybody was into it and all that kind of stuff. Well, what's so interesting is right at this very time, the Beatles, the four guys, were in bitter arguments against each other because of how the finances of, of the Beatles was going. And in fact, they were the, the, the cracks of the Beatles breaking up were in full swing at this point. And I find it so ironic that they write this anthem to love, and yet they were hating each other as they sang it. See, it was all theory. It was, love is a great idea. Love is a wonderful intention. I have all these warm feelings about love, but when it comes to the practice of actually loving someone, I don't do it at all. And you see, Jesus is going to call this guy, and he's going to call us out on that and say, don't say that you've got a warm feeling in your heart. If it's not practical, it's not love. If it doesn't come out in actions or words, uh, if it doesn't come out in some tangible way, it's not really love. Love is always practiced if it's real. So that's what's going to happen here. And you've got this lawyer and you've got us that are sort of dealing with this issue. And into this, Jesus tells us a very famous story. So let's get to the story and we'll kind of see how Jesus is going to deal with this. It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, uh, and went away leaving him half dead. Now, this was actually, in that day, a very famous stretch of road. It was 17 miles long. It dropped about 3,000 feet. It was a windy, sort of perilous journey, and it was known for the robbers that would be along the way, and that was because there was plenty of places to hide, and people generally going from Jerusalem to Jericho had money. Uh, Jerusalem, in fact, religious people especially did because they get paid in Jerusalem And then if they worked down in Jericho, they'd, of course, have to travel down there. 
So this was a story, this is a setting that everybody would have said, yes, I know that road, I know exactly what you're talking about. It would not be unusual for somebody to get mugged on their way home. So this is something that they could relate to. Jesus does a brilliant thing in this story, though, setting the story up. He is such a masterful storyteller. He says that as the guy gets mugged, uh, he gets stripped. In other words, all of his clothes are taken, and he's knocked unconscious. He's left half dead. And this is so, uh, this, this really is a genius stroke because one is he's, he's really emphasizing this guy is desperate. He desperately needs help. But here's the second thing. He can't be identified. People coming by can't tell if he's a Jew that follows the law, if he's a Jew at all, if he's a Gentile that follows the law, if he's a Gentile, if he's a foreigner, And you see that while we think, well, what difference does it make to the guys that are about to come by? That makes a huge difference. Because the question is, who is my neighbor? Jesus is brilliant. He sets it up so you can't know who this guy is. And the story continues. Uh, As he sets it up uh, in that way, he says, a priest happens to be going down the road, this, this same road, And when he sees the man, he passes to the other side. So too a Levite, when he comes to the place and sees him, passes on the other side. Now, very often we look at this story and we think that this is a story about roadside assistance. And we look at the priest and the Levite and we say, how hard-hearted can you be? To see some guy lying in the ditch, you're the only one coming by. Not only do you pass him by, but you literally move to the other side of the road. And we get this picture. These people are so hard-hearted. And here's the danger of seeing the story this way, is we go, well, I would never do that. I would never do that. And you miss the genius of the story because, you know what, we are so much more like the priest and the Levite once you understand that they've got a huge dilemma, and I want to, we're going to take a minute to sort of look at the dilemma that they have. You wouldn't know it unless you knew their culture. But here's their dilemma. All right. They've been working up in Jerusalem. Usually that's a two-week stint because they are, they're priests and Levites down in Jericho, but they come up to Jerusalem to do their religious stuff for two weeks. They work in the temple. They get paid for what they're doing, This is very important. It's one of the major ways, sources of income. So they're going back either with gold and silver or very likely they're carrying back, you know, bread and vegetables and things that they've been paid with. And they're coming back home. This is very important. This is how they're going to feed their family. They're coming back home because they're priests and Levites down in Jericho and they've got a job to do. And now they've been working up in the temple and they're going to come down and they're going to bless their church, their congregation. This is what's going through their mind. When they come up on a body that's lying on the side, you need to see how they think. Here's the first thing that they think is not just there's a guy who's desperate, but there's somebody who very likely is unclean. This was very important for the religious leaders of the day. To be unclean disqualified them from doing their service. And the the Old Testament had very rigorous rules on how if you become unclean, you need to become clean again. So here's the options that they have. They see this guy. They can't identify him. He's obviously desperately in need, though he may already be dead. They see him on the side. And so here's the first thought. Well, he's a Jew, and he's struggling. He's not dead. 
And if that's the case, I can go and help him. But if he dies while I'm helping him, I will be unclean, which means I need to go back to Jerusalem and I need to purify myself for seven days before I can then come back down this road and get home and give my family the food that they need and that I can take care of my congregation. Now, if this is a Jew who is already dead just by touching him, I have to return to Jerusalem and go through that. If this is a foreigner of some sort, if this is a Gentile and I touch him, even if he's alive, I'm unclean and I need to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, And so you can see, depending on how he sees his neighbor, this is a dilemma for him. This is not an easy call. It's not like, wow, what a hard-hearted guy. This is more like, you know, what do I do? What do I do with this guy that's on the side of the road? And so this guy makes the decision. He says, I don't really know who he is, what's going on here. I do know that the odds are that if I touch him or help him, I will be made unclean and have to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, So I'm going to just go with the idea that I should not help this guy and I need to go around him. And uh, And the reason that it says that he passed on the other side of the road is they even thought that if his shadow fell on this unclean guy, he'd be unclean. That's how far they went. So he makes sure, you know, he might have climbed over the boulders on the side of the road to make sure his shadow didn't even hit this guy. And then the Levite does the same thing. A Levite's like an assistant to a priest. Levite does the same thing. All right, so the setup, here's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to make it clear this was a dilemma that the law, that religion created. So what seems to be a very common sense answer, of course, help somebody. The guy's dying, help him. For these guys, it's not common sense at all. There's a true dilemma on what they should do in this situation. So Jesus kind of sets it up that way. It's real interesting. Um, I was talking with Mike Erie, who teaches down in Mission Viejo. He gave me this great, I thought, illustration about this. He said, uh, imagine that a father gives his daughter, when she's young, this wedding dress, this magic wedding dress that uh, is white. And as she grows, it grows with her. And so uh, she's allowed to wear it on occasion, but generally she has to wear it in the house because the rule is you can never get this wedding dress dirty. And so one day uh, when she's in junior high school, she asks her dad, can I wear my wedding dress to school? And the dad says, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's a great chance you could get it dirty. And she says, yes, but I really, really want everybody to see my wedding dress. And I, I really, I'll be super, super careful, Dad. I promise I'll be careful. And so as she's walking to school in her wedding dress, she sees a friend who has fallen down in the mud and is crying. And she has this dilemma. Do I help my friend, but my wedding dress gets dirty? Or do I listen to my dad and, and try to honor him and go on by. And that's the dilemma that the priest and the Levite have. They really believe that God the Father will look down on them if they become unclean, or at the very least, the inconvenience factor of cleaning back up is significant. Now, the reason that I bring this up is because there's not a person among us that thinks, oh, I just walked past a person who's dying on the side of the road. Nobody would when it's theory. 
When it's practice, it's kind of a different thing. When we see somebody that's hurting and we can rationalize or justify or we can say that person is not my concern, that is not my business, very often we find ourselves saying, I feel totally okay passing by. I really do. I'm going to talk about that in a second. When we close up, we'll try to hit this a little harder. But that's kind of the thing that's going on, and we need to be careful that we don't just say, I'd never be a priest and a Levite. You know, we probably are priests and Levites a little more than we would like to admit sometimes. All right, so this is what the setup is. Everybody can sort of relate to the priest and the Levite. At least we can feel their dilemma. And then Jesus plunges the knife in. You know, if already there's a little discomfort with this parable, now it's going to be as uncomfortable as possible with the next three words. But a Samaritan. Let me just tell you about Samaritans, and we'll read the rest of this. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They lived just north of Jerusalem. In fact, they lived in the section between where Jesus was raised, Nazareth, Galilee, and Jerusalem. In between that was Samaria. Samaria, uh, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were part Jewish, and they had intermarried with the Gentiles, which was like the biggest no-no. And so the Samaritans, because they were being sort of prejudiced against, had created their whole set of doing their Jewish laws. And so they didn't worship in Jerusalem. They worshiped in Shechem. And there was just tons of animosity between these two groups. And in fact, uh, when the lawyer hears Samaritan, this is what he would have thought. He would have gone, ah, a Samaritan, ah, Samaritan. Sort of like if you ever watch Seinfeld, Newman. You know, like that, <laughs> Samaritan. You just hate it. Just saying the word is like, Ugh, have to take a shower because I said that word. All right, so, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, uh, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. All right, so the Samaritan is hated. And the fact that the Samaritan becomes the hero of the story could not be harder on the person that's listening to it. Um, Here's what the Samaritan does. And here's what you need to know about the Samaritan. He has the exact same dilemma. Because the clean and unclean rules were for all people. They were not just for the religious leaders. The Samaritans had the same clean and unclean rules. In other words, he looks to the side. If this is a Gentile or if this is uh, somebody that would make him unclean, he's going to have the same problem. So he's dealing with the exact same issue. But on top of that, he's got another issue. And that is, picture this, he is a Samaritan hated by Jews walking in a Jewish territory from Jerusalem to Jericho, both uh, Jewish cities, He's going to show up in Jericho with this guy who is half dead that cannot communicate, you know, probably sort of hung over his donkey. He's going to take him into an inn. He's going to, as soon as he talks, or maybe even when he's seen, this is a Samaritan. Everybody's going to know it. He is bringing in this half dead Jew. What do you think people are going to think about how this half dead Jew became half dead? The Samaritan does not look good. It can be compared to 
You know, if, if an Indian showed up in Dodge City in 1850 with a cavalry officer that had two arrows in his back slung across and he brings them in, you know, what are people going to think? Hmm, I wonder how those arrows got there. You know, this was a very dangerous thing that he was doing. He could easily be killed for what's happening here. And so he takes a tremendous risk. It's even a greater risk than what the priest and the Levite would have taken. So it's a very, uh, it's a very risky thing that he's doing. It's very practical. He bandages him up. He puts him on the mule. He takes him into town. He does what this guy needs, and it's costly. He actually gives a week or two worth of lodging for this guy. And so you see that it's sort of a complete picture of how do I help this guy. Um, now, for the, for the lawyer, uh, there could not be a worse character to do this, but even he has to admit the Samaritan did what was right. The Samaritan, uh, Jesus makes the, the story, uh, he paints it in such a way that there's no way that you can say the Samaritan messed this up. The Samaritan is the good guy in this. And in fact, we hear this uh, as the story closes. Jesus asks him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I find it so fascinating. Notice what the lawyer does not say. So who was the good guy in this, Jesus says? Does he say the Samaritan? No, can't even get the words out of his mouth. Uh, I guess it's the one who had mercy. Newman. You know, that's sort of what's happening here. He's just like, ugh, I hate that that is the answer here. Here's what Jesus does, and this is so important for us to see. He actually changes the question. The question that the lawyer asks at the beginning is, who is my neighbor, right? And here's how Jesus answers. That's the wrong question. The real question is, are you neighborly? In other words, does practical, costly, risky love pour out of you to whoever happens to be around? Are you a neighborly person? Because that's really what God's looking for. He's not looking for the people that are on the ends that you're going to treat really well, the other people that you're going to ignore or treat badly. Jesus says, no. That's not, that's not the way it works. The way it works is that a loving God has poured so much love and compassion and grace into your life that that love can't help but pour through you to anyone who happens to get in the way of it. Anyone who comes around you is going to experience this because it's a character quality of you. To be a loving person just happens. It just comes out of you. And that's what Jesus is going to press real hard on it the idea here is you don't put love on and off. You love everyone. Your love is practical. Sometimes it's risky. Sometimes it's costly. But the idea is we always love. And that's really what comes out of the Good Samaritan. Don't ask, don't spend your time thinking, who should I love? The question to ask is, how am I loving? How am I loving? How is this quality pouring from God through me out to other people? And, you know, this becomes a really practical issue for us. So, question. Somebody that practices a lifestyle that you find abhorrent, do you get a pass on loving them? 
For some of you, maybe it would be a homosexual, and you'd say, oh, that's so wrong. That's so wrong. I would never love somebody like that. Or somebody that's sort of a druggie. Or somebody that's a playboy. Or somebody that's a loose woman. Do you categorize people and say, some people I'll treat well, some people I don't need to. I don't need to help those people. I get a pass. How about people of other religions? How about people that don't believe? In fact, they, they think Christianity is just flat out wrong. And they, they zealously practice their religion. A few years ago, I wasn't here. I am so glad to say that I'm now on staff of a church that did this. But the Mormon temple or, yeah, Mormon temple was being built just up the road. And they asked mariners if they could use our parking lot for, while some of the building was going on. And mariners said yes. And mariners got so much grief from the Christian community, not so much from people in, in mariners, but from the outside, even nationally. How could you do that? You are implying that it's okay to be Mormon. And mariners said, we're not implying anything. We're just helping some people that have a need. That's what we're doing. And they could anchor it in the Good Samaritan story. Uh, how about, how, where do you stand on illegal immigration? You know, I know that's a political issue, but you know, there's a very practical issue because you come in contact with people that are in this country that are undocumented. You do. The question is, would you love them? It doesn't matter where you stand politically on that issue. Would you love them? How about just people that make terrible decisions? They make a mess of their life, and you say, you know what? They're kind of getting what they deserve. Would you help them? How about somebody that's personally hurt you? Somebody that just treated you so badly, a partner that cheated you, a spouse that left you, you know, uh, you know a neighbor that is so, so obnoxious. Do you get a pass on those people? Are those the people you don't need to love? And then here's the one that is the most challenging to me, and I fail at it so much. Do I help someone when I'm busy? Do I help somebody when it would be inconvenient to me? Do I help somebody when it would make me a little uncomfortable to get into their world? And I justify not doing that so quickly because I've got such important things to do. Hey, I'm a pastor. I've got things to do. And what Jesus would say to us is he'd say, then, Kevin, you're asking the wrong question because you're wondering who is your neighbor, and I'm telling you, are, I'm asking you, are you neighborly? Would you love anyone? Well, here's what I want to do. I want to give us a really practical thing. How much more time do I have? I'm like almost over, huh? All right. You guys, can you listen quick here? Listen quick. But this is like the most important thing. Sorry that I held it to the end. I want us as a church to sort of hold a mantra, okay? And I, I'm going to call it the 3M strategy, okay? And we get it out of actually this story. The 3M strategy is this. Uh, meet a need, make a friend, move toward Christ. Meet a need, make a friend, move toward Christ. Oh, it's up there. Is that so cool? All right, so let's just say that together. Meet a need, make a friend, move toward Christ. Let's take it off the screen. Kill it. I want to see. All right, now let's say it again. Meet a need, make a friend, move toward Christ. Okay, well, that's exactly what we see happen here. 
First thing is to meet a need. That is a great entry place to build a relationship, is just meet somebody else's need. When we were living in South Carolina, we had neighbors, and they, the way I looked, met this guy, he was our immediate next-door neighbor. The way I met this guy is he came over and complained because our boys were playing their music too loud. And he was kind of a grumpy old guy from Maryland, you know, Maryland people. Anyway, he's kind of a grumpy guy. And uh, one day, uh, when leaves come down there, it is not like when leaves come down here. I mean, leaves that come down in uh, South Carolina means your yard is like three feet high in leaves. And one day I decided I would just do my yard and do his yard at the same time. And he came home at the end of the day, saw that I had done my yard and done his yard. And he was staggered. He didn't know what to say. And in fact, this is what he said, kind of being a grumpy old guy. He said, I suppose you expect me to do that for you too. And my yard was much larger than his. And I said, exactly. No, I didn't say that. But, <laughs> but what it did is it engaged us in a friendship, and we became friends. And, uh, and that was a great way to enter into that. So you know, meeting a need, clearly that's what the Samaritan does. And then he really makes a friend with this guy. He says, I'll put you up in this hotel. I will come back and make sure things are paid. In other words, he's generating a relationship. And that's something that's so important for us is to generate relationships. Meeting the need is the first step, but move into a relationship because meeting a need is a nice thing to do. Building a friendship impacts somebody. That's how you impact somebody is by being a friend. And then the third thing is to move them toward Christ. And you're going to say, well, that's not in this parable. And you're right, it's not, because he was talking to a lawyer that did not believe in him. But Jesus is very clear to those that do believe in him. Our ultimate goal is to move people, to introduce people to him. And so I want to encourage you right now as you think about the people in your life, who do you need to practice the 3M strategy with? Maybe it's just the very first thing. You need to meet the need of somebody that you know in your life. Tim had asked us to think about that. Is there somebody that pops up into your mind, I need to meet a need here? Maybe you've met the need and you need to now transition into a friendship and make it something more than what it is right now. And for some people... It's actually saying, you know, at some point I've got to help them find Jesus because that's the ultimate gift that I have, is to help them find Jesus. And one day Ralph came up into our house and uh, we were, he was sort of, he made small talk for a while and it was clear he had something to talk about. He finally asked me, he goes, what does this born again thing mean? And I'm telling you, it would not have happened if the first two things had not happened. If I had not met a need or we'd become friends, he would have never asked the question. I would love this to be the mantra of our church as we move into Huntington Beach. We are a congregation, and we meet needs, we make friends, and we move people toward Christ. And I'm just telling you, if we do that simple thing together, Huntington Beach will be changed. Honestly, Huntington Beach will be changed, and you'll be changed as you do it. So that's what we're doing. Okay, let's just say it one more time. Meet a need, make a friend, move toward Christ. Let me pray for us, and Tim's going to close us with... Uh, sort of a little response. Lord, thank you so much for the love that you have for us. And it really is true. In a way, Jesus, you are just telling your story through the Good Samaritan because you are the Good Samaritan. You are the one that came to us and met our needs. And you became our friend. And you move us toward yourself into life. And we are so grateful for that. So, Lord, we pray, we pray that you'd help us to have that same attitude, that same spirit, that same practice. Uh, work through us to change uh, the neighbors that we're around. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.